session with Dr. Farid Holaku. Good afternoon and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tolakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram, or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest books or topics for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and free podcast on iTunes. Again, the studio number 3104410555. All right, before I talk about the book of the week from last week, I wanted to announce the book for this week. It is We Should All Be Feminists by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. We should all be feminists, and I'll be talking about on Monday's show. So look forward to reading that and talking to you about that book. We should all be feminists by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. Uh, the book of the week from this past week that I'll talk about today is the Book of Why by Judea Pearl and Dana McKenzie. The Book of Why: The New Science of Cause and Effect. And I must say, of all the books I've read since doing the books of the week, this was probably the most challenging one for me uh, to read. It, it was one of the longest, um, which is actually why I picked it on this week, where I knew I had a few extra days because of the Labor Day holiday. But also it was very complicated in that it was talking about some things that are not necessarily my uh, area of, I don't even say expertise, but area of knowledge. Um, looking at things like statistics and causal pathways and things of that sort. But I did find it very interesting and learned a lot in the process. And so I'll share with you some of what I got from the book, but also some of my thoughts uh, related to issues that the authors brought up. And really, there's two authors, Judea Pearl and Dana McKenzie, but it appears really it's more Judea Pearl who is uh, sharing his thoughts and ideas and Dana McKenzie as a writer, was able to help make the thoughts, uh, let's say, more um, palatable or in a way, written in a way that could be better understood. But Judea Pearl's perspective is really the one we're hearing uh, about, and he is the winner of a Turing um, Award and really a brilliant mind. And throughout the book, one of the things that you definitely feel is that he is very passionate about the work that he does. And you see how excited he gets that talking about different issues that have come up and puzzles that he had to deal with and when he solved them, uh, how excited he was. And to me, that was quite interesting. And to see when people do something they care about and they find interesting and intriguing, um, what might seem like work really becomes exciting and almost like play becomes something fun to do. So you feel that throughout the book. Um, but the book of why, the new science of cause and effect. So one of the main themes that comes uh, that, that's throughout this book you hear about or it's talked about is this idea that we used to say, and anyone who's taken a statistics course, they always say causation or correlation is not causation. So if we find out the two variables are correlated in some way, we can't infer causation, which is true. 
But uh, Judea Pearl talks about in this book how starting maybe over 100 years ago, and he talks about the history of statistics and different key members in that, including Pearson uh, and Galton and others who were involved in this development, there became this idea that we can't look at causation, so let's completely abandon that idea. And so for generations, people did not look at causation or try to figure out causation so much, or statistics essentially thought that was not something almost possible to look at. And so we didn't see advancements in this way. But what Judea Pearl is talking about in this book, which is quite remarkable, is that there actually are ways that we can try to determine or look towards causation, that we don't have to completely abandon this idea that we can try to figure out cause and effect. And as he talks about, the human brain really works in a way of cause and effect, thinking about what causes what. If this happens, did it make the next thing? If X happened, did it make Y happen? And also counterfactuals, this idea that if X didn't happen, would Y still happen? So, for example, he talks, uh, or almost has a whole chapter devoted to smoking. And this was a big debate. People were trying to research, does smoking cause cancer? And now we very much accept it as a truth. But when it was a raging debate, there was people on both sides who were arguing that it was causing cancer. Some saying, we don't know if it causes cancer. Maybe there's a third variable that makes people more likely to smoke and then also makes them more likely to have cancer, like a smoking gene or a lung cancer gene. And actually, there even does seem to be something of that sort, but it doesn't play such a huge role in determining if someone, uh, or let's say smoking still has a big part in determining if you'll develop lung cancer or not. But nonetheless, he talks about how we look at these issues and if we don't realize that we can create causal diagrams or ways of figuring out cause and effect, we're going to miss out on a lot of what's there because it was very clear that smoking was causing cancer, but because statisticians were so hesitant due to their limited knowledge or limited language, I should say, and how they would communicate things and how they would develop their ideas, they, it was very hard for them to say this was the case. And then the smoking companies and people who were on the other side really were able to latch onto this and continue to say that, well, you can't really prove that it's causing cancer. If we thought even they would say that there was this link, we wouldn't sell our products, which uh, was very much bogus because there was later internal memos showing that they saw this link probably had a lot of reality to it. But nonetheless, um, this is why this type of uh, thinking can be very important, that we have to realize that we can't just keep thinking in our old ways. And that's another theme that runs throughout the book, this idea that when we enter into a field or really enter life, we learn from other people how to think about things. And although in some ways this can be good, we can also see how limiting it can be. Because, for example, in the world of statistics, because a few of the early pioneers came up with these ideas and essentially said that we can't look at causation, trying to figure out cause and effect. We can just look at things like correlation. Uh, then many generations after that still followed these rules or followed this way of thinking and didn't challenge it very much. And sometimes when they did challenge it, 
they were met with harsh criticism and attack from people who were already within the field or the, the powerhouses in the field. And in this way, this sometimes reminds me of how people can approach religion. Or in some ways, I sometimes think that we can even recognize that science and scientists can almost approach their fields as a religion. Now, I'm not saying science is not wonderful, and I don't believe there's anything better than the scientific method that we have at this time. But I think it's important to realize that sometimes we create almost like dogma out of the theories that are the most popular or prevalent and almost create gods or prophets out of the leading thinkers of those theories. Um, And this is very dangerous because then we don't question or challenge them. And this can almost seem ironic because science is all about questioning and it's supposed to be self-correcting, and it is in, of course, a lot of ways, and we're supposed to always be doubting and be skeptical. But still we see that within the fields, people tend to have a narrow way of looking at things, a narrow way of approaching the problems. And if we think about the problems with the same way that we created those problems, we'll never find the solution. And this is why sometimes someone who's actually not in a field will come in and look at the situation and they might come up with something that none of the experts within the field could think of because everyone within the field was warped in thinking of things in a particular way. So that to me was very interesting to see that these great minds throughout history uh, very often were not able to think differently about some of the things and the problems they were facing And because of that, we're not able to make things progress. Of course, this is uh, Judea Pearl's perspective on things. And so he's saying that if we create things like causal diagrams and pathways, and I won't get into the details, one, because it would probably take too long, and two, because I can't say I grasp it well enough to then explain all the details of it, but essentially that if we don't just think of causation or if we don't just think of correlation as the end of what we can do, we can actually create diagrams, causal pathway diagrams that might be able to help us determine cause and effect relationships in very important things like things that happen in economics and health and public health, medicine, psychology, the social sciences in general. There is more than we can do rather than thinking the only way we can determine cause and effect is to do things um, using the RCT, randomized controlled tests, I guess. Maybe I'm saying that wrong. But basically, uh, when we would have two groups, this is what we tend to think of as an experiment looking at, let's say, a new medicine, is you have two groups, one gets the medicine, one doesn't, and then we see how they do. And there's things we do to make it double blind so that even, let's say, the doctors or the people uh, administering the drugs don't know which ones are the placebos, which ones are the real ones. And we do all sorts of things to try to figure out cause and effect but that this isn't the only way to determine cause and effect. And of course, in a lot of cases, we can't do a randomized controlled trial. That's what it is, randomized controlled trial. Because, for example, with smoking, we can't say, okay, we're going to have this group of people smoke for 10 years and this group of people not smoke for 10 years and see how they do. Of course, we can't do that and make people uh, smoke or not smoke. Um, That would be unethical and not okay. So oftentimes we can't do these types of things. And so this book looks at how there actually are ways and there's a whole new science of figuring out cause and effect um, that really is revolutionary and groundbreaking. So to me, that was quite interesting. And I'm glad I read the book to see 
the direction of thought that is going into things like statistics and looking at those types of things. He also talks about artificial intelligence and how he thinks that one of the issues or something that's limiting in artificial intelligence is that they are not looking at cause and effect or having the, um, if you want to call them robots, or these thinking machines or these uh, programs to look at cause and effect. And that's the way the human brain works, and that's why it's been so hard for scientists to create AI that can even mimic the cause and effect ability of a three-year-old. We're still in some ways not even there because he thinks we've been asking the wrong questions or programming things in the wrong way. So it was a really fascinating uh, book, uh, The Book of Why, The New Science of Cause and Effect by Judea Pearl and Dana McKenzie. I also wanted to share, um, he talks about some paradoxes and in a way explaining how the human brain, he says, thinks in cause and effect and has a hard time dealing with probabilities. And so sometimes when something is about probabilities and probabilistic, we see it that we make mistakes or we tend to have errors or biases that, that tend to make us get things wrong. And there's one that's sometimes very hard for people to get, or even as I will maybe tell it, people will disagree with what I'm going to say, but he shares something that he calls the Monty Python paradox. So basically the way this goes is there's three doors that you can't see behind what's the, behind what's behind these three doors. One of them has a car and the other two has nothing. Now the host knows where the car is behind which door. And so you get to first make a choice. So let's say you pick door number one and then the host knowing where the car is, um, but also uh, he's going to now open one of the doors, but he's not going to open the door that has the car behind it. So let's say he opens door number two. And he shows you the car is not behind door number two. Now you're given the choice. Do you want to stick with door number one, your original choice, or do you want to stick or do you want to switch to door three? Now we know it's not behind door two. And many people will say, well, it doesn't make a difference. It's 50-50 now. Uh, and a lot of people will want to stick to their original choice. I think partially it's because we don't want to feel like we're getting tricked by the game show or the, whoever is running this thing. A lot of times we like the idea of sticking to our guns, choosing the one that we thought and we want to stay with that one. Also, there is something where we don't like to make an action that leads to something bad. So as a result, we'd rather just do nothing and see what happens and to make an action that we might regret. So to switch to three and find out it was in one will probably feel worse than staying with one and finding out it was in three. So I think for a lot of these reasons, people tend to stick with one along with the uh, miscalculation, if you want to call it that, that they are making, that it's a 50-50 chance. But the truth is you should switch from one to three. You should change your answer. And Many people listening might disagree with that, and I don't know if I'm going to get into all the mathematics, but essentially what's happening is when you pick your door, one, let's say you pick door number one, there's a one in three chance. I think everyone would agree with that. And basically there's a two in three chance that the car is in one of the other two doors. And then when you're shown that one wrong answer, even though now it seems like it's one in three, or sorry, it's 50-50, it's your door or the other door, really still, it's still a two and three chance that the car is in door number three as compared to door number one 
that you initially chose. And he shared a story of, I think it was a woman named Marilyn, and she had a column, I don't know if it was called Dear Marilyn or Ask Marilyn. People would ask her questions, and she would respond, and she gave a response to this puzzle, and she got so many letters from even statisticians and people with PhDs in mathematics saying, you're wrong and you're not right about this one, you're totally wrong and you're off. Um, but he explains how she showed, and he explains in the book, Judea Pearl, that no, actually, she was right, that you should be switching. But it's because the brain thinks in, prob- in a more cause and effect way and not it can't really uh, ascertain the probabilities correctly that we make this choice. So if you disagree with my uh, interpretation that if you chose door one, you should switch to door three when the host shows you that the car is in fact not behind door two, I know maybe it sounds a little bit complicated, feel free to share your thoughts with me and you can even look up answers online. But it does show that our, our human brain is limited in certain ways of thinking and we have to realize that the ways we think can be limited by those factors, the ways that we might approach the world. And when we try to make things like AI or even when we're trying to determine things in statistics, we have to be aware of the shortcomings we might have because they can get in the way of how we think. But the important point in this book is that we can try to determine things like cause and effect, looking at data and creating pathways of trying to understand what's going on. And we shouldn't just think that we can't do that, that we have to just talk about correlation and avoid causation altogether, uh, which I thought was quite interesting. So that was the book of Why the New Science of Cause and Effect by Judea Pearl and Dana McKenzie. And again, the book of the week for this week is We Should All Be Feminists by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. آیا می دانستید ردیف کردن دندان ها یا از بین بردن فاصله های بین دندان ها از طریق ارتودانسی نامرئی می تواند فقط در شش ماه صورت بگیرد؟ اگر حداقل 18 ساله هستید و یا فرزند بالای 13 سال دارید، برای اطلاع بیشتر با ما تماس بگیرید. دکتر پاتریشیا بهزاد در Any Dental and Implant Center 323 886 3368 Back studio number three one zero four four one zero five five five. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hi. Hi. Thanks for calling. Oh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate uh, sure. this opportunity. Um, so um, I'm 29 years old, and um, I was born and raised in Iran, and then uh, moved to the States about five years ago um, to pursue a graduate studies here in the U.S. Um, ever since I was 20, uh, 22 years old, um, I've been meeting with, I've, I've been in touch with this um, therapist that she does um, psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm. So um, when I was back in Iran, I would meet with her in person once a week. And um, after about two years, when I... Um, moved to the States, we carried on um, our sessions over the phone, still once a week. Um, well, it's, you, you probably can guess how 
close I feel to her because mm-hmm. I've been talking to her for years, and um, she, she probably knows me best out of all the people in my life. Um, it's been one of the longest relationships, friendships, or whatever I've had with another human being. But um, it, I, I, I have to admit, the thought of always questioning whether or not um, she's the best help for me has always been in my head. But I have always contributed that doubt to the person who I am yeah. <laughs> and not really her skills. Um, up until very recently, that I'm that I'm really thinking um, may, maybe I should move on to another therapist. And this is my confusion. I don't know if my subconscious, my brain is planning a whole, um, you know, kind of a self-sabotaging scheme, you know, self-fulfilling prophecy on me, or or if I really have a point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, this is, yeah, no, it does. And I mean, obviously, I want to hear more about uh, what's going on. But this is what makes these types of decisions, whether it's with a therapist or even just in relationships in general, sometimes we can't tell, or it can be harder to tell, is it because it's not good for me that I want to stop it? Or is it because actually it's good for me that I want to stop it? Or is it because I'm feeling so close to this person and that feels a little bit scary? that I want to stop this relationship, it's not always so clear. So um, yeah. it, it, I could see how you're not sure, especially if in some ways it's related to issues you're dealing with and the issues that even are bringing you to want to be with a therapist. That can make it even more complicated. Uh, one thing I'll say, and I, I well, let me say this first. I try to be careful in general, but especially here on the air, that if I'm talking to someone about their treatment with someone else, that I'm aware that, you know, they are the expert. And of course, you're the expert in your own life, but they are the the person, the professional you're dealing with. So, uh, you know, I'm not going to be able to give you a very clear answer and I I don't want to interfere so much, but I'm more than happy to talk to you and explore things that you're thinking about. Um, But related to that one thing personally, unless there isn't a better option or in, in certain circumstances, I think that phone therapy is not as good as doing face-to-face therapy. So I sometimes have a, a bias against that part of it. Now, if you build a relationship with someone and you feel like through the phone you're still able to to have the connection and the emotional intimacy that you need, it can be okay. But that's the first thing that stands out to me is that in general, I myself don't do phone therapy uh, because of that reason or even like Skype therapy, which maybe makes it a little bit better. But still to me, the um, having the face-to-face contact is is something valuable that I think can't be recreated unless you're in the same room with the individual. So that's my own personal bias. Now, it doesn't mean in your case it means you should definitely stop with this person, but just wanted to share that uh, with you. So what are the things that make you concerned or make you contemplate if this is the best person for you? Uh- Sure. Well, I hope I don't rant too much and I give you a cohesive answer. Um, But maybe I can begin with saying that. um, So I didn't have the best childhood or adolescence or like young 20 years in Iran. Um, I've been always struggling um, with relationships with 
human beings in my life, including family or friends or basically it is it is an issue for me. Um, I, I, I haven't had the best the parents want to say I'm, I'm, um, you know I'm sure they were dealing with whatever they were dealing with, you know with the outcome on me and my life was a little. Um, you know, not not the best. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, one of one of those really broken relationships that, for years, for years, honestly, up until now, even after these many years of therapy, that my whole life has been revolving around is the relationship with my mother. And um, see, I, I I'm not talking off of any any psychological books when I call it abusive or emotionally abusive, but this is merely how I feel. Mm-hmm. Well, can, you, can you describe what, what felt abusive to you? Sure. Um, well, growing up, um, like it was my mom's and my mom was in the, I don't know, the shortest, the most brief way to describe her. She was overbearing and controlling and, um, she, she had really, really strict standards, really, mm-hmm. really hard, really hard measures to measure me against. And if I wasn't living up to them, which in almost all cases I wasn't, um, she would put me down. I was always compared with everyone, people who were 20 years older than me or my age. It didn't matter, boys, girls, everyone. And, of course, I would always come in last. Um mm-hmm. Even to this, like, she has straight out told me that she wanted to have an abortion. She didn't mm. want me. And so basically stuff like that, you know, like she isn't, I guess, um, yeah, she, she can't say she's proud of me. I, you know, it's stuff like that, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of it. So um, it's funny, but to give you, I, I, I sense you can hear, I'm getting emotional, yeah. but even to give you um, a sense of how I feel about my past, uh, and I'm an only child, by the way, um, is I was I was reading this um, fiction book, I, I, I'm not sure it's completely fiction, but it's an anti-war book by this, called, uh, this guy called Kurt Vonnegut, I'm not sure if you're mm-hmm. familiar with mm-hmm. him, but basically he's the character of his story is stuck in time and he randomly jumps back and forth in between the years of his life. Like he might open his eyes in a second and be 20 years younger or, or older. And when I was reading that story, my heart started racing because I felt what a devastation if I ever wake up in my wow. house in Iran again. Yeah, wow. So, I mean, that that tells us, like you said, and we don't need to go by some kind of textbook definition, but your experience was very painful, and it does sound emotionally abusive the way you're describing it. And the unfortunate thing is that you might be thousands of miles away from her now, but that voice inside your head is her voice, unfortunately. So even if you can be so far away from her, but you're going to be judging yourself in those same ways at least you might do it sometimes the way that she did it because we tend to internalize our parents voice and that becomes like our inner critic and our inner parent 
And so mm -hmm. I can even feel that in how you talk and just very, very maybe small things that you say make it very clear that you're very critical with yourself or you, you are hard on yourself or you expect to kind of do something wrong or something not good. And so unfortunately, it seems like that comparing and putting down is something that you now do to yourself every day on your own, which is very unfortunate. So, um, yeah, okay. So I could see how that would yeah. contribute to uh, low self-esteem, but maybe in a more diagnosis kind of a way, a depression that you might mm -hmm. be dealing with. Probably a lot of anxiety too. I, I doubt it's easy for you to, mm -hmm. to deal with things without doubting yourself, and those things are obviously going to lead to anxiety. Okay, so you had mm -hmm. a very painful... Um, childhood, adolescence, young adulthood, yeah. and then I'm sure, although maybe it was good to get away from that home, coming to the United States had its own stresses and challenges that you've had to deal with as well. Yes, but it has been at the same time one of the best things that has ever happened to me. It's almost I've always been dreaming of this, of mm -hmm. being away and independent. So but just like you said, it's like I have brought all that baggage with me. Mm -hmm. And um, another, and I, another part of the story is also, I wish, I wish I could say, you know, my mom was abusive, but when I was out at school or with my friends, I've had the best experience. But that isn't true either. Mm -hmm. You see, so it's like I've got all this um, negative information of how bad I am you know, quote-unquote bad, um, from getting bullied in school or just not being able to maintain friendships, you know, not being able to make a lasting human connection or just picking wrong guys for myself one after another. Um, so so it's... Yeah. It, hasn't been the best well, yeah and i think i hope at some level you can recognize because when you say that there can be a part of it that sounds like it just confirms that maybe people aren't good or that you're not good and people are going to be bad to you or you deserve for them to be bad to you but the way i hear it more and i'm hoping you hear this too is that when we get treated a certain way at a very young age and because of that, start to make conclusions about ourselves and about other people that I'm not good enough or I'm not lovable and that other people are mean and harsh and not nice and are going to try to hurt me. Unfortunately, we tend to confirm that throughout our life. And so, for example, when you went to school and you already felt bad about yourself and felt you were, let's say, not as good as the other kids or there was something wrong with you or bad about you or that people weren't going to like you, you are more likely going to be someone who other kids might pick on because you would probably take it more than other kids. Or you even showed that you were someone kids could pick on. And this isn't a way of blaming you as the victim, but of understanding what happened. Because not all kids get bullied the same way or they don't respond to bullying the same way. And that ha does have an effect in what happens. So mm -hmm. even though in your mind it might feel like, well, see, I got bullied. So that meant people are bad and I'm bad because that happened to me. To me, I hear it more as you, of course, were good, but you had this fear or this thought that you're not okay, that you're bad, that people are going to be mean to you and that other people were mean. And so when that happened, you could accept it as reality, as, mm -hmm. as truth. And so humans were very good at being right much more than we are at finding reality a lot of times. We'll, we'll confirm what we already think and we already believe more than we'll find 
truth oftentimes. And so it seems like throughout your life, unfortunately, you've been confirming this feeling of not being good enough and of people being bad and mean continuously throughout your life. And so you keep getting reinforced and it can be very scary because it seems like, well, it's been my whole life, 29 years of this. So how could I accept it or expect something different? And I don't know if you've had different experiences since then, but um, it also means that you're going to be afraid to create close connections. And that confirms to you, see, I can't make any connections, but it's not just because you can't, it's also because you fear them. You're afraid to get close because you're afraid people are going to hurt you. You're afraid to let someone close because you think when they see the real you, they're not going to like it because you think it's unlovable or something is not okay. And I know I'm making a lot of generalizations very quickly, but that's just some of the impressions I'm getting from you, from what you've shared so far. Now, we're getting to a commercial break, and I definitely want to talk to you some more, especially because your initial question was about your relationship with your therapist, but I do want us to explore these other issues too. So just hang on the line, and we'll talk some more after the break, okay? Sure. All right. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacqui. We'll be right back. Back before the break, we were with the caller. Let's go back to her now. Uh, caller, are you still there? Yeah. Okay. Right All right. So before the break, you were telling me a bit about yourself. Um, you're mm-hmm. 29, been in the U.S. for about five years, came for graduate school. and But you shared how you had a very painful, very painful childhood emotionally uh, with your mother, especially. You didn't talk much about your father, but you said that you felt she was emotionally abusive. You talked about ways that she was constantly comparing you to others and always saying you were less than them or worse than them and putting you down. Uh, but tell me a bit about your father also. Um, okay, this is not going to get any better. Okay. Um, my father was... Um, so my parents separated. They got a divorce when I was two years old. Yeah. My father was very abusive to my mom. He would hit her physically several times. And... Um, she, she finally kind of ran away, and then there was a long custody battle to, um, you know, win my custody uh, for my mom because, you know, in Iran, automatically the child's custody is with the father. Mm-hmm. And, um, of course, he didn't want me, as in, of course, he didn't have means of, you know, taking care of me and raising me, but my mom kept saying he is doing this to us, basically dragging that long fight just use it against her you know just uh, uh, true or not this was a message that I kept getting as a kid and uh, my father also um, unfortunately he um, I was very little but I have images of him sexually abusing me um, sexually I was very, sorry I didn't really young. did you say sexually abusing you <laughs> yeah hmm. And um, I was really scared of him. I was I was really, really, really scared of him. He was an angry person, and he would sometimes take me for days, sometimes for weeks. And um, it was just a roller coaster. And eventually, he gave up. He, when I was before I got six years old, I guess he got tired of of it, and he left me alone with my mom. And he was kind of like my nightmare, growing up, you know, because he could have. He could have, what if he, 
suddenly showed up somewhere, you know, and claimed mm-hmm. me again. So that was basically my fear until he passed away when I was um, 13, I think, 13 or 14 years old. <laughs> but another another sad part to it was, well, I hated him. So when my mom told me that my father's brother has called and has told her that my father wants to see me because he's sick and he's in the hospital, I didn't. Mm-hmm. I just I just shrugged it off, you know. I didn't take it seriously at all. And then he actually passed away after that. So I, I guess I never got any closure yeah. with him. And I don't know, I mean, a lot of, as a 13-year-old, you might have... Did you feel guilty for not seeing him, or no? Did you not have that experience? Guilty, I guess. In no, you don't have to. I, I don't want to tell it. you you should. You're someone who I no, think blames you. No, I'm trying to think yeah. about it. I don't feel not guilty. Okay. Not guilt. Not not feeling bad for him, but feeling bad for myself. Sure. That I never had that. Yeah. You know. Well, well yeah, and I'm sure I was going to say, you know, obviously losing a parent at 13 is an intense experience, but when you have the type of relationship or lack of relationship or the horrible relationship you had with him, it, it can make it even harder to grieve that loss or it makes it what we mm-hmm. call complicated grief or a more complicated process. So I can imagine there's a lot, there could be a lot of emotions there. Now I know you've gone to therapy, so maybe yeah. you, you've worked through a lot of that. Um, but it's a very, it's a very sad thing to think even saying this kind of feels bad, but that someone dying could feel like a good thing because they've done nothing but hurt you in your life. Mm-hmm. But that yeah. that was unfortunately the truth of your yeah, childhood. I, I remember I was crying out of being relieved, hmm. you know? Yeah, like some, like a nightmare was over because you kind of said how you always had this fear of him coming back because it was unpredictable. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, of course, he was treating you, he was abusing you. So, of course, that must have been terrifying. Did you tell your mom about the abuse? No, I didn't tell him. Hmm. And, you know, growing up, I kept getting this message that I'm just like my father. Like, my mom hated yes. him. She she saw him as a monster. She still does. Not even a human being. Like a monster. And for me to keep hearing that, I'm just like him, you know, when he had already hurt hmm. me so much, too, you know? So that was definitely very hard. I still think it's one of my fears because I keep thinking, okay, if someone sexually abuses their kid, there has to be a very, a very bad, like something must be wrong with them mentally. And I keep thinking, what if that something is wrong with me? Well, you you don't sound anything like a monster to me. You sound like someone who is hurt by a lot of people. And yeah, you are genetically related to both of your parents and i'm sure there's some ways that you're similar to them but it doesn't mean you have to you're you're that way similar to them that you would hurt people or hurt someone in that way so yeah your father to do that was mentally ill and not okay unfortunately things like sexual abuse are much more common than people realize because we keep it so taboo and people don't talk about it and i'm you know i'm sorry that you obviously had to go through that but even that you couldn't talk about it or tell anyone, tell your mom, means that you didn't feel safe to tell her too, or didn't feel safe to tell anyone. Maybe you were still afraid of your dad and what might be the repercussions. So that's really, really horrible. But yes, your your childhood was 
very painful. You know, you, I, we talked about your mom before the break, but now this added dimension of your father, of course, uh, that's extremely painful. And again, to go through all of that, and you would hope your mom could have been, you know, like a savior for you, but it doesn't seem like she made it any easier. She might have made it worse, especially comparing you to him. Uh, and it's so sad when parents do things like that, whether there's a divorce or not, but just uh, that, that's really... I mean, of course, it's going to have a huge impact on how you feel about yourself. And so mm -hmm. life has been very painful for you and scary. Um, we talked about depression, but I'm sure there's a lot of anxiety, too, the way you talked about this, like, fear of him coming back. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's yeah. going to make you afraid of just almost everything, but especially meeting new people, creating new relationships. That's going to be terrifying for you. Yeah. Yeah, you, you really hit the nail on the head when you said you don't like others and yourself. It's as bad as it sounds, I, I, I don't like people. At least in my experience, I've always been in a small or big way betrayed by them, mm. you know? Yeah. And uh, it's, it's, it's painful. And, you know, your father, um, well, I listen to his show a lot, but mm -hmm. I didn't have the courage to call him. <laughs> Um, uh, but he um, he has he sometimes um, gives this analogy to, for some people that puts a bittersweet smile on my face. Like yo, well, that sounds like me. He 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 calls some people uh, like a glass cup. You know, mm -hmm. people who look firm and tough from outside, but yeah. if they fall, they break into pieces, mm -hmm. as opposed to a plastic cup. You know, and that's that's me. Yeah. People see me and they think there, and in many ways I do. I learn to be independent in many ways. That mental reset button that other healthy, quote-unquote, healthy people have when they go through a hardship or somebody does them wrong, they can get up. Yeah. You know, after some time, it's like I get up, but something is in me is definitely broken that next time I have far less to give, mm -hmm. far less trust to give, far less anything to yeah. give. And, and even, right, and this, it's good that you can realize it, but the, the knowledge of it is not enough to, to make you able to change it. It can help, and that's what you're going to try to do. And, you know, what you're describing is also something that sometimes people, when you talk about looking very strong, they'll see someone and say, wow, he or she is so independent, like they don't need anyone. But really, it's not that they are so strong, it's that they're afraid to connect to anyone. It's more of they're being alone and isolating rather than being strong and independent. And we know that actually true strength comes from being interdependent, when we actually can rely on, on other people, get help from other people and help them. That's what we're supposed to strive towards. But a lot of times people will look at someone and think, wow, look, she's so independent and strong, she doesn't need anyone. But it less is from a place of, uh, strength and more of a place of fear that you're afraid mm -hmm. to let anyone in because you think mm -hmm. they will hurt you mm -hmm. or you're almost yeah. sure they will hurt you. And but yeah, Or just a place of necessity, you mm -hmm. know? Sometimes life forces you to, to just, you know, and that's not necessarily a sweet feeling. It's just, I have to be this way. Like, who else is going to take care of me? Well, that's, yeah. But, and that's the thing is I know necessity may be of your life so far, but I want you to realize that it doesn't mean you can't do something different going forward, that life has to be as it was these previous 29 years. You have to 
try and you're trying to get uh, the help and you know even I'm glad you called me and we're going to talk some more but I want you to realize that although it might feel like it's just doomed that it can never be different you have to trust that it can be different even the fact that you talk to your therapist and can trust your therapist the fact that you called me and are at some mm -hmm. level trusting me that I'm going to, you know, although, yeah, there's enough distance where you could probably protect yourself from me if I were going to say something mean or hurt you in some way. But there had to have been some level of trust that you had to call. So I don't want you to think it's all black or white, that mm -hmm. you can never trust, you can never be in close relationships. It is possible for you. It'll be challenging, but I don't want you to give up on that altogether and think, I can't. Out of necessity, I'm going to always have to be alone. That's mm -hmm. not true and it's going to take courage on your part because we know that for everyone getting close is kind of scary intimacy is a scary thing to be vulnerable and to be open but for you it's going to be even more scary it's going to be almost like a phobia response you know of, of getting close to someone but that you're going to have to try to face that and and overcome that and realize my radar is off. My radar, first of all, is off that maybe it's going to attract me to people that are hurtful. That's the part that you have to be careful about. But also my radar is often thinking that people are always going to hurt me in some way, that no one will treat me right or want to be good to me, that that's not true. It feels very true, but it's not the truth. So, so this is going to bring me to my question about my yes. therapist. Mm -hmm. She has done, she's doing so much to make me see what you're just describing for me. Mm -hmm. And she's trying so much. She she validates how it sucks to go through these experiences and far more from my dating life to my friends, coworkers, boss, anyone. Um, she, she confirms that it sucks and she really wants me to see uh, um, that people are all flawed mm -hmm. and that's not... Like, I know know all this, you know? Like, I almost know what's the right thing to say at each situation, you know? Mm -hmm. But it's different from how I feel. And another thing also is her trying to make me see that you can stay with people despite their flaws has kept me in two relationships in particular that I call very abusive. Oh. One, my mom, and another one with a boy that happened a year ago around this time. <clears throat> and um, yeah. I, I feel really bad for going into a relationship with that boy because he sure wasn't treating me right in any way. And the fact that my therapist kept encouraging me to to stay with the flaws, stay with the mm. flaws, stay with the flaws, it just prolonged that relationship far longer than it needed to. Yeah, you know? uh, yeah. Relationships, and this is what re makes relationships so complicated, is that. Um, Everyone will tell you relationships are difficult, they're going to be challenging, there's going to be some pain, but there's a big difference between the healthy pain of a good relationship and the unhealthy pain of someone who's hurting us. And it seems like maybe it was the second one, and, and I could see how because of that you don't feel uh, very good about that your therapist yeah. was taking care of you or, or, or saying the yeah. right things or the guidance. And the relationship with your mother, 
what what did she say about that when you're saying she she honestly you? there was a point that very recently I told her look she's hurting me so much that and I hated to admit it I even hated to admit it to her to myself to anyone that I'm having suicidal thoughts again mm. you know for half of a second it passes through my head and I told her look I don't want to have those thoughts again and that's And that was the that was the line when she heard that she was like, okay, if if it's that much, then stop it. I I felt bad for your mom in a way. She, you know, she was like, to be honest, I felt bad for her because she doesn't want to hurt you, but at this point, she is so clueless on what she's doing. And yeah, I, I mean that's not okay. I I, I think. I, I, yeah, that I'm not very happy when you say that, that she was encouraging so much just kind of this idea of, well, it's your mom, so you have to make it work, or your poor mom. Um, she wouldn't say any of those. She okay. kept saying, well, she is flawed. Like, anything I said, she would agree with me, that she, she, she would be like, okay, look, your mom is sick. But she kind of was hoping that I would remember that when I interact with her. Like, yeah. But sometimes, yeah, but some, right, but sometimes we have to recognize that someone is sick and we have to limit our connection with them. It depends on what we're talking about. If we make kind of like a physical analogy, sometimes someone is kind of sick and you can hang around them and you're okay. Sometimes someone is sick and they're contagious and you need to get away from them to take care of yourself. And mm -hmm. it could be that with your mom, the way she is, she can't help but hurt you in a way. And even you realizing she's sick might not be enough to prevent that hurt. So I don't know the details of what she's doing now. Uh, and I think I agree with the idea that, yes, everyone is flawed, you and I included. But there's a difference between accepting people are flawed and allowing them to hurt us in really big ways. People are going to say things sometimes we don't like. In any relationship, there's going to be times where we're going to hurt each other to a degree. But it matters, are we hurting each other just because of, interactions that happen and sometimes we rub up against each other the wrong way or are there almost intentional ways or extreme ways that someone is hurting us mm -hmm. and that's very different and that's not something we ever have to tolerate to say well someone is flawed so they physically abuse me or emotionally abuse mm -hmm. me no that's yes they are flawed but there's also you taking care of yourself a and unfortunately these things aren't always so black and white and it can be hard mm -hmm. to determine well should i accept this person's flaws Or is this person actually hurtful and damaging to me in a way that I, I shouldn't accept? And it seems like it wasn't clear to you till after the case. And in both cases, you felt let down by your therapist. Now, we're yeah. at another commercial break. And I still want to talk with you some more because okay. there's so much that you've brought up. And I don't want to I'm just so end right there. I'm sorry for taking so don't much Don't be sorry. I'm, I'm, really don't, don't, yes, I'm not surprised you feel guilty because that sounds like something that you would say based on the short time I've gotten the chance to know you. But I'm choosing to talk to you some more because so I want to talk to you some more. So just hang on the line and we're going to talk after the break, okay? Sure. All right, thank you. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacqui. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Before the break, we're with... A caller, let's go back to her now. Caller, are you still there? Yeah. Okay, okay, good. Okay, so um, we've gone to talk a bit about, or a lot about what's going on with you and your life, starting from your childhood. Yeah. But you were talking about more recently, and the, it, the reason why you called, and I wanted to make sure we get to that even more deeply, yeah. is uh, your therapist and your 
unsure about whether she's the best person for you to continue with. You've been talking to her for what, almost five years, seven, seven years, seven Seven years. Mm -hmm. Okay. So go ahead. What are you, you know, you mentioned that there's two relationships you felt like she encouraged you towards um, your, with your mother and with uh, a boy that you were in a romantic relationship. And you felt that in both of those cases, maybe you felt misled or that she was encouraging you towards something more hurtful. Um, what are, uh, is that the main things when you think about uh, changing therapists or what's, what's going on? Uh, no, I, like, it's not like I'm mad at her. I mean, I'm mad at her for those, but it's not directly because of that. Those only let me to think, you know, I find myself many times I tell her, you don't hear me. And I, I think I finally can pinpoint what I mean by that. Okay. Um, the best way I can describe it is she is like a painkiller, an Advil for mm-hmm. me. Um, she is this lighthearted, easygoing, flexible, bubbly person that when I bring my um, issues to her, she she. She acknowledges them. She acknowledges them, but then she wants me to move on from it mm-hmm. and not really be taken down by them. She wants me to understand that it's people's issues, and I can still be with those people despite those some of those issues. You know, mm-hmm. it's. But, but I think what she doesn't get is how much. How much. It devastates me, mm-hmm. you know. Now this is this is the part that confuses me. Mm-hmm. I don't know where the balance is between seeing a patient or a client feeling their feelings and exploring that darkness that I feel. I have this huge darkness in me, and um, not letting them drown in it. Mm-hmm. So I, I genuinely don't know if what she's doing is protecting me from my demons or if I'm just looking away, you know, mm. I'm just numbing the pain um, because I feel like I want to imitate to be like her. I want to get out of here. But then the truth of the matter is, like I said, I don't have that reset button. <laughs> so these things happen and it accumulates inside of me. You know, yeah. and so one thing is I think she doesn't get the depth of that, and the second thing is when I feel like last night I talked with her, but afterwards I was so emotional that I was crying until three in the morning, and oh. I can't stop crying today either. So when days like this happen, I feel okay. Is this normal? Do I need medication? Can I be depressed in some way, like clinically depressed? Since you know, and like I said, I listened to your father's program too. Mm-hmm. He talks about how anxiety and um, all stuff like that could be, uh, you know, genetics. And we've had it in our family, like mom's side, dad's side, you know, you name it. Well, you and have, whenever, well, not only do you have genetics, you have the, the your experience, your life. And the experience, yeah. exactly. So, I mean, I think medication is something I would consider seriously for you because of what you're describing. You yeah. Yeah. So whenever I talk to my therapist about that, she just every time I bring it up, do you think I may need medication? She wants to hear the why, why I want to label myself, why I want to act like a psychologist for myself, 
why, you know, I feel mm. he doesn't believe me when I yeah. say how much pain I'm going through. Yeah, that, that, that kind of worries me. Um, I think I get a feeling, and I'm only hearing your side, so of course I can understand maybe we talk to your therapist, she'll see it very differently, but I could only speak on what you're telling me. And it does seem like she limits your feelings or she can be dismissive, not completely. You say she empathizes, but only for a, a period of time or a brief moment. You feel like she wants you to, quote unquote, get over it. Um, and of course, the goal is for you to be able to move forward, move on from it in that way. But the only way out is through. You have to go through it. And you talked about the darkness. And one of the things that we can get through therapy, it can also be from a, a close friend, but especially through therapy, is that we go with someone into that darkness and it makes the darkness not feel so bad. And over time, that darkness feels a little bit lighter. And also, you mentioned the demons. When we really face the demons with someone, which can make it less scary, we can see that they aren't as scary as we thought over time. And so they can become less scary. It's kind of like the idea of there being a monster under your bed. And then you think it's so scary because you're imagining the monster. But then when you look, you see that there's nothing even there. So it's nothing scary. But having a person go with you is important. And having someone that will stay with you there is important. Um, so the idea that, well, you shouldn't be sad anymore is not really going to help you when you find yourself crying the next day. And then unfortunately what that does with someone like you especially is then you blame yourself that something's wrong with me, that I'm the problem, or I'm so broken that nothing can fix me. Even my therapist uh, can't fix me or even my therapist mm -hmm. thinks I'm broken because I'm more sad than she wants me to be, you know, so that yeah, comparison comes. When, like, sometimes, and only sometimes, like, hi, you're so proper, but only sometimes, like, I unleash the, the demons, you know? Yeah. And one time that I was, last week, I was telling her, look, I don't trust you because of that situation with my mom and that guy. She straight up told me, well, if you don't trust me, then maybe you should stop seeing me. And that was that mm. wasn't the first time that she told me that. And... She, she says, like this last night, she said, well, you know, people people make mistakes. I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. And why don't you, why can't you see that as my mistake? And I just can't, you know, like I can't, I keep, those types of mistakes well, can't happen. Yeah. Well, and those kind of, and they might happen. People do make mistakes and your therapist is not, you know, going to get it right. A lot of times they're going to make mistakes, but I do feel like the response you're telling me is more defensive than I think is going to be good for what you need in therapy because you're going to have trust issues regardless of what the therapist does and the therapist needs to recognize that and and walk with you and explore that with you what are you feeling and to just tell you well if you don't trust me just stop seeing me with someone who has issues related to trust is not what you need because that's going to make you feel like well if i tell you i'm upset or hurt you're going to run away from me which is not what you need uh, so there's some, some things that concern me about what you're saying. I personally think for you to see a therapist face-to-face -face is going to be better for you anyway. And to seriously consider medication, not because I want to label you or anything like that, but that I'm sensing the amount of pain that you're in. And that can be helpful for the amount of pain. So it's not about labeling. It's more about looking at the need and people, even if you get medication, doesn't necessarily mean you have to be diagnosed with something. 
and maybe you are to me it doesn't really make a difference because you seem like you're in a lot of pain and that's what we want to to work with but there's some things i feel with this therapist that do concern me that the dismissiveness about your feelings now maybe she feels like well we've been talking about the same things get over it in a way but you know i work with people in therapy too and usually people's problems that's their problems it doesn't just go away you might get better in how you feel about it or working through it but a painful childhood like yours isn't something you just move on from and get over and it's completely in the past and has no effect on your life today that's probably never going to happen can you move forward and create a better life absolutely but can you just forget it as if it never happened probably never you know and that we have to, to accept at some level that it's always going to be there with you but you can live with it much better than you've had so far so i can understand some of your concerns with her as your therapist and so i would think about for me even like i said seeing someone in person is even more valuable than over the phone and for that reason i would also say explore those options that you have mm-hmm. near you do you think they could understand me even though i'm not from here you know like i can't speak english and yeah. i know a lot of english expressions but i feel culturally they're different well your english is is very good I'm I'm seeing no issue with you in English, but of course, there can be something that expressing yourself in your mother tongue can feel better and more, you know, you can be more emotionally connected to that. So I can understand that. I don't know where you live and if there is any possibility of finding um, a Farsi speaking or someone who at least understand, understands Farsi, that, that would be helpful, but I wouldn't say it's necessary, in my opinion. It helps, but I think someone can... Um, understand you even if they're not Iranian but if you can find someone and that's you know you have to feel comfortable with whoever you're working with that's always the case but especially for you where trust is an issue you're going to want to make sure you feel comfortable with that person you need to have that so I still hope you'll find someone that you can see face to face because to me that is optimal and I would seriously consider the issue of medication do you think I should see a psychiatrist separately sooner or do you think i should take a psychologist and let them uh, refer me to a psychiatrist yeah, hmm. i'm not sure yeah I, 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 yeah i don't know i mean i think either one to me makes sense i don't to me it's whichever one will make you act first because maybe if you wait till you see a therapist you might wait because you feel bad about ending the relationship with her so you won't go for a while so then I'd want you to go, go see a psychiatrist sooner than later. But I wouldn't want you to also just think, well, if I'm taking medication, then I don't need to switch therapists if you think that's the right thing to do. Of course, you're going to make this decision yourself. Um, but I would just want to make sure you act because usually with these kinds of things, we tend not to take action because it's uncomfortable. You know, even with this case, she's told you not to see a psychiatrist, so maybe yeah. you feel bad about it. So yeah. whatever one's going to make you get off the phone with me and make a phone call or start looking into it, do that one. So which one do you think you would do today? So I probably the psychiatrist. Okay. So then I would say so I would say go ahead and, and do that and and see and and he or she will get to know you um, better and what's going on and will get to make an even better assessment and decide what to do. But to me, the idea of medication being this horrible negative thing I don't agree with that because someone could say the same thing about therapy. Why label yourself and go to therapy as someone depressed or anxious, you know? And people say that. Mm-hmm. They say, I don't want to go to therapy because it makes me, it means I'm crazy or it means I have 
big problems or that I need someone's help. And this unfortunately keeps a lot of people from getting help that they so much deserve and that would actually help them, help them, help their families, everything. But they tell themselves, well, I don't want to be that person and label myself. So I don't think you should think of it in that way. You, you're someone who genetically you recognize you've inherited, unfortunately, a lot of uh, probably mental illness um, predisposition, we can call it. And also your family history of what you experienced yourself, your own upbringing was very painful and abusive in multiple ways from the two most important people in your life. And apparently even other people hurt you throughout your life. So I think you deserve everything to help you feel better. I appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate you calling in. I'm glad I got to talk to you and, and I hope you'll make that call today and go, get moving on that process and really think about what you're feeling. Like I said, I want you to make the decision, but I think think about the possibility of seeing someone face to face because I think that uh, is going to create a different type of connection and relationship than what you can have over the phone. Mm -hmm. Sure. Thank you so much. Sure. Thank you for calling. Wish you all the best. Take care, okay? Thank you. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank Bye. you. Bye. All right, we've reached our next commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You know, talking with the last caller, I'm happy she called in and I really do wish her the best and hope I was uh, helpful to her in at least some ways. Um, it made me think of something. I've read about a lot and but recently saw this short video on it uh, called the imposter syndrome or sometimes called the imposter experience or imposterism but there's different ways it might be labeled but essentially it's this idea that we sometimes think that no matter what we achieve or whatever happens on the outside externally we still feel like we're not enough uh, and in this video actually I talked about how even Maya Angelou and Albert Einstein had this experience at times, which can be shocking when you look at Maya Angelou, who was so accomplished, and Albert Einstein, maybe known as the greatest scientist of all time, or definitely one of the greatest scientists of all time, still thought that maybe they weren't good enough or weren't enough in some ways. And I've come across this more when I was in graduate school myself, because it's a very common experience that students have, especially, for example, graduate students, that everyone here is smarter than me, or in a way, I'm an imposter that even I'm here because everyone else is more knowledgeable than me, they are smarter than me, they are more competent and more capable than I am, and even to the point where sometimes people will think that their admission was somehow a mistake. They even have a fear that they're going to get another email or a letter or a call saying that we made a mistake when we gave you that admission. You actually did not get in because they're so certain that they're not good enough. And it's really amazing that we can have this feeling and it runs so deep. And to me, it is something so deep because we see that external accolades and acknowledgement and achievements don't tend to convince us otherwise but somehow we still can think that we're not good enough no matter what happens on the outside. And, and this is where this idea of having a strong self-esteem is so important. Of course, it is for so many things. And why it's so important for parents 
to show their kids that their value isn't just because of some achievements or accomplishments that they get, that actually they have inherent value just by being a human being, by being them, that is worthy of being loved and appreciated and cared for. But when we tend to feel like our love is earned because we have done something or because we're even beautiful or we're smart or we've accomplished something, then it always feels like we have to perform to get that acknowledgement, to get that appreciation. So it's important for parents to give kids the message. You see them, you see what they accomplish, what they do, their strengths and all of that, and you acknowledge those things, but that you make sure that they recognize that their sense of self or their sense of being worthy of love does not come from any performance. It does not come from acting a way that you like and it's lost when they act in a way you dislike or even uh, something much more related to emotional world is that if you are happy, I'm going to love you. But when you're sad, I'm not going to give you love. You won't be making me happy. And a lot of parents may not realize that they give their kids this message that when you're happy, I love it and it's nice and good. But then when you're sad, mommy or daddy doesn't like it. And mommy or daddy doesn't feel good. And in that way, the kid can feel like they are not being loved. So we see that it's really important to give kids this message that you are good enough. You know, there's that famous book by Thomas Harris, I'm okay, you're okay. Just this feeling that I am okay. And you give that sense to your child, you are okay being who you are. We love you being you. You don't have to be someone else. But unfortunately, many people don't have this internal sense of worth, this self-esteem, and it feels like it has to come from the outside. And what we see is that no matter how much we try to fill these holes up from the outside, we never feel fulfilled. And that's why no matter what someone accomplishes, they'll still feel like they are not enough deep down inside. But let's look at this imposter syndrome a little bit more closely or in different aspects of it. Another thing that contributes to this imposter syndrome, this feeling of I'm not enough. So again, let's think of people who've entered a graduate school, um, is that we don't recognize that other people are struggling or having challenges, but we do see our own struggles and challenges and our own anxieties. So you show up on the first day of class and it looks like everyone's okay, even though you're nervous, even though you might be uncomfortable or afraid of, am I going to be able to do well? Am I good enough for this? Can I meet all the requirements for the program? Most people are probably having some type of thought like that, or at least it crosses their mind, but almost no one is sharing it. So you walk in and there's this pluralistic ignorance, this idea that because everyone seems okay, no one's talking about something, no one is thinking or feeling this thing that I am thinking or feeling. Uh, another way of looking at this is, for example, when you're sitting in a class and the professor asks a question or is having, a, let's say, a lecture and says, are there any questions? And you're not sure about something, but it looks like everyone else is getting it and you were too embarrassed to ask to be that one person or we think that one person that doesn't understand, so we don't say anything. But then some brave soul raises their hand and says, you know, Professor, I don't understand this part. And then you hear like 15 other people say, oh, thank God they asked because they weren't sure either, but they were afraid to ask. Right. So we see that although before that person said anything, what it looked like was that everyone understood it except for you. We see that once someone asks, there's many people who also didn't get what was going on. 
So this is really this idea or an example of pluralistic ignorance, this idea that we think everyone thinks something or knows something or thinks differently from us because no one is saying anything. And this is actually why I think it's so important for us to be more open in general or as a society and even in graduate schools, they do promote this, that you can have things like support groups where people can talk about their fears and their anxieties. And this serves many purposes. One is, of course, talking about it can make you feel better and, and getting it off your chest and working through it. But then also when we talk and we see other people are also worried or also going through difficulties, we see that, okay, it's not just me. Maybe I'm not abnormal. Maybe it's normal to be a little bit nervous about this. Maybe I'm not someone who's not supposed to be here. Maybe I'm okay being here. I'm supposed to be where I am. Uh, another area where we see this, for example, is with new mothers. And we know that many mothers, even a good portion of them, are going to go through at least what we can call postpartum blues, but then even a large portion will uh, even experience something like a postpartum depression, something that severe. But we see that when moms have their baby, it's supposed to be just a time of celebration and joy, and it's the biggest blessing in your life. It's even called a bundle of joy, your new baby, and all these wonderful things. And moms feel like when they are sad, or thankfully, because we're talking about it more, maybe this is becoming less the case. But for many mothers, when they were experiencing these blues or this depression, and everyone around them expected them to be so happy, and I think this is the greatest day and days of their life, they felt like something was wrong with them. Am I a bad person? Am I a bad mom? Am I not even fit to be a mom? Um, should I have not become a mom? This was maybe a mistake. And all these horrible types of thoughts can come to someone because they think, again, it's some type of almost imposter syndrome. I'm an imposter. Everyone else is good at being a mom or can do this but me because everyone else is so happy, but I'm actually feeling unhappy at this time. I'm feeling depressed. I'm feeling down. I'm feeling anxious. But once we start to be more open and actually talk with one another, when moms start sharing their experiences and we see, you know what, actually that's the case for a lot of people that, yes, it's this amazing thing that's happening, becoming a parent, becoming a mother and having this child, having this baby. But I'm also having a whole lot of other feelings. Um, life is changing. The world is changing. There's anxieties about being a parent that, of course, we can understand anyone is going to have hormonally and biologically so many things are happening to the body that of course that's going to have an effect on things like mood and energy level and whole sort of other things and so when people start talking we realize it's not uncommon to feel down to feel depressed even or at least to have some level of the blues but before we talk about it and it looks like everyone else is so happy and we think we're the only one that's unhappy we think well, something's wrong with me. I am a problem. I'm not okay the way that I am. And if we extend this just to how people are in general, we tend to hold our negative feelings inside or our struggles inside. So when we see each other, everyone says, I'm okay, I'm doing well, everything's good, life is good, I'm happy, I'm happy, and we kind of go on our ways. But then, of course, with our individual experience, when we don't feel okay, when we feel down, when we feel sad, when we feel even depressed, we think, well, everyone else is okay but me. I'm the only one who's going through this. And so we kind of play this game of don't show me yours, I won't show you mine when it comes to our negative feelings, our sad feelings, our struggles, our pains. And this reinforces this idea that if I am 
unhappy, if I don't feel okay, if I feel sad, something is wrong with me. I am the problem. But again, once we, you know, remove these curtains that we're putting up between ourselves and everyone else and realize, hey, no, we're all going through something. We all have bad days and bad times and are struggling with something that maybe people around us don't even know about. But when we start to share these things, we see that, one, we can connect with each other and allow each other to support one another through these struggles and, and pains that we are having. But two, I'm not bad for having these kinds of feelings, for feeling down, for feeling sad. That's part of life and everyone is going through it. So we almost shame ourselves for being human. It's like if we thought it was bad to go to sleep and everyone says, well, it's so good to be awake and alert. So let's pretend like we're always awake. And then every night you'd sneak away and try to sleep and felt ashamed that, oh, I need to sleep, but everyone else is awake, not realizing everyone else is asleep too. Everyone else is needing that rest. So it's okay to be someone who needs sleep because that's what a human needs. And human beings go through ups and downs, and that's part of the human struggle. It doesn't make you bad. It just makes you human. So you might find yourself, especially if you're in a new experience, for example, grad school or a new job, having this feeling that I'm not supposed to be here, that I am not enough. And they even You can call it the imposter syndrome, but we can see that it's not just in those cases. It's just even in being human, we can have this feeling. And it's because we don't realize that everyone is going through their own struggles. You show up to class that first day and it looks like everyone is so calm and put together that you don't realize the stresses and things they went through to get to where they are. But you obviously experienced your own struggles and your hardships and the ups and downs you had and the doubts you had that make you think, well, no one else is going through what I'm going through. So I hope if you're hearing this, you recognize that if you are somewhere, if you're at a job, if you're in grad school, if you're whatever you're doing, you're supposed to be there in that you're not uh, there on some accident. You made it there because you deserve to be there. If you're at a new job, you know, let's say whatever you might be doing, if you're an architect and you're at a new firm, you probably deserve to be there and probably the company could be very lucky to have you because you worked hard to get to where you are at. And to recognize that and to realize that if you have those doubts come in, that you're not good enough, that you're not enough, that's just something that our brains tend to do. We sometimes think these things even when there's no reality to it. So there's that aspect that you're not an imposter if you're doing something. But the other aspect of it is recognizing how much we get from being more open to one another, sharing our struggles, our hardships. If we all try to pretend like everything is so easy, we don't realize that we're hurting ourselves and we're hurting other people. But when you acknowledge the hardships, hey, being a parent is tough. And that's why when people write these blogs or they have, you know, they share videos where they talk about the realities of how, how hard parenting is, it gets such a great response because everyone else feels like we have to pretend like we're always okay or it's always so easy or we have it all figured out when really we know no one does. It's a challenge to struggle. And so when someone breaks down that wall and shares that reality, people really like it because they can relate to it and it makes them feel better. Like, Ooh, I'm having a hard time, but I see this person is saying how hard it is too. And so that makes me feel a lot better. So we don't have to hide our struggles from one another because we think if we share them, it's going to make us look weak. What we can realize is once we share them, we'll be able to connect more, support one another more, and realize that, hey, we're all going through something. 
We're all struggling, and that's part of life, and it doesn't make us bad or weak. It just makes us human. All right, going into our last commercial break, studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Oh, hi. Uh, thank you very much for accepting my call. Sure, thanks for calling. I'm calling regarding my daughter. I've got two twins. Um, they are six years and eight years old. Uh, six, six years and eight months. Mm-hmm. Um, just to give you a background, they were born about 37 weeks of gestation, and they were all right. I could see my daughter from age of three, four months bit more irritable compared to my son um, if they had a routine of two hours sleeping two hours awake she had more lower pressure for a tiredness or hunger just crying more mm-hmm. and later on she had a very significant stranger anxiety I mean it was very difficult for me to go to any kids program to go to the park um, even if, if I had a guest coming to home, she was just crying for the first 10, 15 minutes. Sometimes I have to hi- had to hide her. Um, slowly got better, and also she had a very, very bad tantrum during that age of two and four years, as you would expect, but um, it was more pronounced compared to my son. In a way, my son never had any tantrum. Now, at the moment, actually, everything is settling. The only problem I have is still I feel that she's got this stranger anxiety, and mostly from the crowd, mm-hmm. especially when I go to school, um, when I want to drop her, and she's really scared in the first five, ten minutes. She's very sociable. I mean, now at the moment, if the one-to-one people coming, stranger, talk to, the, to her, she's just, uh, hold a conversation and very sociable. She doesn't have any um, separation anxiety. Everything else is okay. But even I ask her, what makes you scared when you go to school? She said, I hate thousands of people around me. Mm. And she doesn't want to detach from me. She wants me to stay for the first 10, 15 minutes. Still, I'm struggling when I drop her in the school. My question, how can I approach this? Mm-hmm. I mean... I've been trying to implement all your father's, you know, um, parenting guide, and I've just seen the result. And my son, is, I would say, is just like perfect. No problem. Never had any issue. But I think, I mean, we, both in my and my husband's, we have got a anxiety and genetically probably uh, transmitted to her. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know at this stage, should I just push her, just go, or should I still stay with her? I just need to some guidance yeah. in that regard. Well, you know, hearing you talk, there's a lot in what you said. One thing that, that struck me is saying your son is perfect, and I have two issues with that. One is that obviously no one is perfect, and also that that's okay. But then two, what I would get concerned of is, in a way, you're saying he's better than your daughter because of how he is. And I know maybe you don't think that or would try to say that to them in any way, but we have to be aware of what messages we send the kids when we say, well, this one is so easy and good and everything's perfect and she's trouble or she's difficult. And and I know the reality of it is tough when a kid throws tantrums. It's never pleasant. So I'm not saying you shouldn't have any feelings about that, but we really have to be aware of this, the messages we send the kids of, 
this is how you should be or your brother is the right way and you're not the right way. Because that's not something we want to pass on to them in any way, this feeling of not being okay or not being enough. Now, do I want her to feel anxiety? Of course not, in the way that you're describing it. But do I want her to feel that she's bad for feeling anxiety or should she have to be just like her brother? No. Um, we don't want to think that she has to be more like her brother. That's the goal. And especially we don't want to in any way give that message because, again, it's saying your brother is better than you. We're comparing them. So if she's more shy, if she has more social anxiety, especially when it comes to groups, I'm not saying we want to tell her, yes, groups are scary. You should be scared of groups. But we also don't want to make her feel like, well, you shouldn't be scared of groups and something is bad that you're afraid of groups and we don't like that. We want to make her feel okay as she is. And being parents to multiple kids always has lots of challenges, but one of the big ones is that we try to make both kids feel good, or more than two kids if it's more than two, as they are, and not think that you have to be like this or like that. And of course, when they're twins, it's almost magnified more because they're going, they're exactly the same age, going through everything at the same times, or essentially going through things at the same time. And it can be even more difficult to not make the kids feel like they're being compared. And so it's going to be very important. One thing I'd say before we think about how to help her with her anxiety is to make sure that you and your husband are aware of we're not giving any messages to them that this is the right way to be and that's the wrong way to be. And also the issue I have with using the word perfect with your son is that if he gets this message or this feeling that I am perfect or mom and dad love that I'm acting in this way, behaving in this way, if he has his own issues or struggles or whatever it might be, he might be, one, he might internalize that as like, now I'm not perfect, so I'm not lovable, I'm, you know, all these other bad things, and he might be afraid to share them with you. So we have to be very aware of those messages we send the kids, and maybe you think explicitly you don't say anything, but very likely implicitly or unconsciously you're going to give these feelings to your kids, and that's something that concerns me just in what you shared in those few minutes. Yeah, I totally understand. Probably I shouldn't have used that word. Actually, a few weeks ago, I went to school for the you know midterm um, report. I'm just telling that I totally aware what you're saying because mm -hmm. I've been following um, the, the, the the senior holocaust. Uh -huh. <laughs> so uh, even the teacher of my son was saying, as probably your daughter is so sociable, she is sociable. But I'm just saying that I have got a problem in the first five ten minutes when she enter at crowd. Mm -hmm. She was saying probably your daughter is so sociable. Your son maybe is actually shut himself off because um, she was seeing her is more sociable and higher than him. In actually at home we are very very careful. Actually at the moment she has got more rational reasoning maybe because of the girl is you know going more ahead, mm -hmm. and I can see more wisdom coming her and I'm more actually protecting her. We don't have any issue, and I'm more careful, actually, even with the twins, I'm struggling how to, you know, give them a, yeah. um, a reward if somebody, one of them is doing something good, and because I always try to be equally, you know, at the same time, not to feel uh, they are not in the same line. Mm -hmm. So I don't have issue in that one. I've never, never, ever mentioned that you're better and be your mm -hmm. brother and this, that, that. but. My question is, at this stage, does she need any medication? Or should I just encourage her, just leave her? You will be all right, which I feel that should not be the 
right thing to do. But um, I don't know how to carry on with yeah. this, her anxiety in the first five, ten minutes she's facing the crowd. Yeah, and it's not an easy solution. And um, also, you know, some of what I was saying was to parents in general, so I don't know if you guys are giving those messages. But even unconsciously, we can pass a lot of things. But, you know, to your bigger question about her, uh, to me, jumping to medication sounds like it would be a bit much, although I don't know all the details of everything she experiences. But to me, what you're saying is not something so tragic or something we have to just immediately get rid of. Again, I don't want her to feel an anxiety when she enters a situation, but it seems like that's how she is. And you even described her as more irritable from an early age. And I think there's definitely a connection there. Just she is going to be someone who feels more discomfort, feels a little bit more uncomfortable than maybe your son in an initial situation. And there's a, a great book, uh, the early, what is it? The science of early development. Let me look up the name as we're talking. Um, but it's a really good book looking at this issue. Uh, she makes comparisons of how kids, even when they have early sensory issues, it might not seem related, but very much it can be connected to issues of anxiety later on in life that maybe we wouldn't think are related to that. And, and I'm going to look for that um, book title for you. Here it is. Um, the Developmental Science of Early Childhood by Dr. Claudia Gold. Gold like the metal. Mm -hmm. um, but so it seems like, you know, there's a good chance that your daughter always will be anxious or at least have some anxiety. Now, it doesn't mean we totally ignore it or that we are going to pretend like we don't care but we know that she just has that just like if two people walk into a room and it's funny because here in the studio i'm always warm but two people could walk into a room and one of them feels hot one of them feels cold now maybe there's something biologically going on but either way it's not something really in their control so when your daughter goes into a room she might feel kind of anxious and it might take her some time to just adjust to what's there you know, some kids are slow to warm up. Maybe that was her disposition as a baby, too. As they get older, they can feel that way, too. They enter a situation, and she might need a few minutes to feel settled in. And then she's okay. And so going back to your question of do you kind of just push her in a way and, you know, have her face it or not, this is where these things become difficult because we have to find a balance between not coddling them, where we don't allow them to face some discomfort in order to grow and of course you know kind of abandoning them and pushing them into a fire in a way that hurts them even more and it's going to be hard to find that balance so i would always stay with her we always want to make sure we empathize with her so if she's anxious about starting again you might think well what's the big deal she's walked into school a hundred times but we want to stay with her that for her it still feels anxiety provoking and so we understand how she feels we're going to empathize with her. We're not going to tell her there's something scary going on, but we can understand that she feels uncomfortable and that you're there. And usually how I have worked with families when there is either stranger anxiety or separation anxiety, a lot of times, let's say with separation anxiety, the kid will hug the mom or the dad and almost you can feel like it's clingy. So you'll feel the parent almost letting go. And I always say you want to make sure the kid lets go first. So you're not the one that's almost pushing them off. You're showing them I'm here. And so even with her, I would encourage her, but make sure she knows you're there. So even though you, you can talk to her and say, what does she feel? And you don't want to make her feel bad about it. So even we have to be careful when you say, why are you feeling this way? 
even though it might seem like we're trying to understand, it could come off in a way of judging it, that you shouldn't feel this way. So even you have to be aware of those words that you use, that when you're trying to understand, it doesn't come off as judgmental, because that's going to make her feel bad. Um, and sometimes you can ask her after the fact, because in the moment when she's already anxious, it doesn't feel good. It's just going to make her feel worse or she won't even really be able to focus on that. But when she's more calm, you can have a conversation of understanding what she goes through and explore that with her. But I would say you want to find a balance of encouraging her, but just throwing her into the fire to me won't be the right solution. Sure, we understand that. All right. Thank you very much. Yeah. yeah, I got my answer. Okay. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for calling. Thank sure. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. So something I mentioned with um, that caller is a challenge that parents do have amongst the many challenges they have of making their kids feel okay or feel loved and appreciated even when they are, let's say, different. And a big one related to what she brought up is this idea of being an introvert versus being an extrovert. And sometimes people don't like those labels, but we can see sometimes people have characteristics that, for example, make them more easy to just get along with a lot of people. Or they enter a crowd and they like that feeling, whereas someone else might not like the feeling of being in a crowd or big social interactions. They prefer one-on-one -on -one or even prefer their alone time. And what we want to realize is there isn't some optimal way of being. So not every kid and not every adult has to be someone that wants to go be a public speaker or go talk to a lot of people or make you know be the center of attention although sometimes maybe we like some of those things we have to be aware as parents that we don't think that that's the one size fits all kind of approach or the optimal way of being and instead of trying to make our kids become something we allow our kids to be who they are so you might have two kids and in this case that they were twins so even again it's that juxtaposition might seem more close but let's say you have two kids and one of them is more of an introvert and one is more extrovert you want to make sure you don't make the one who's introverted feel bad about this and even i think i used the word shy when i was talking to the caller and this can have a negative connotation that you're a shy kid or parents will tell their kid why are you being shy in this negative way but if a child needs a little bit of time to warm up to get comfortable we don't want to make them feel bad about that it's not something they're just choosing to do uh, that's why I was making that connection to the sensory issue. Sometimes some kids just, it's a feeling thing. They, they feel something. They're not thinking about it and saying, I want to take long to get comfortable. It's just how they feel when they enter the room. And so we want to make sure we don't make the kid feel bad about being that way. And also, again, realize that as parents, our job isn't to make our kids become something, but it's allow our kids to grow and become who they are and to meet their potential. And that their potential is going to be different than their brothers or their sisters because they're different people and they have to be uh, validated and appreciated for being the unique individuals that they are. So this is one of the challenges that parents have when it comes to especially having multiple kids is loving each child individually and acknowledging and appreciating who they are and not trying to force them to become some type of person that we think is the ideal. And to think that being an extrovert, as many people can think, is the ideal is not necessarily the case. There's a lot of value in being uh, an introvert. And most importantly, the true value comes in people being themselves and being their true self. Uh, but if you want more information on the introvert and the power of introverts, there's a book called Quiet by Susan Cain. And I think the subtitle is The Power of Introverts. But 
very good book on that topic. All right, we're reaching the end of today's show. Again, the book of the week for this week is We Should All Be Feminists by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. Uh, thank you to all the callers and the listeners and to Fairhuda here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dalakwi. Have a wonderful day.